Play Cyberpunk 2077. Drive supercars, battle corporations, and upgrade your body. That's what I'm talking about! Cyberpunk 2077. Available December 10th on Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and Stadia. Rated Mature. Today on Something You Should Know, how did blue jeans, which are basically work clothes, become so fashionable? Then, ways to explain your ideas so people actually listen. For example, first asking people how open-minded they are. So by asking people how open-minded they would be, gives you almost a rejection-free way of being able to introduce your idea to somebody without them saying no, because the only way they can say no is by admitting to be closed-minded, which is like admitting <laughs> to be an idiot. Then, the benefits of laughing and crying, and the interesting ways we judge people and treat them differently based on how they speak. Well, not everybody, but many people are unaware of how people who speak in a way that other people don't like or that's considered a non-standard dialect, how they might be treated more poorly by individuals and by institutions. All this today on Something You Should Know. So I'm one of those people who really appreciates their sleep. And given the state of the world and all there is to worry about, well, sleep isn't always easy. And the mattress I sleep on makes a huge difference. So I jumped at the chance to take the Helix Sleep Sleep Quiz. It takes two minutes and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Because everybody's unique, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. Soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses for cooling you down if you sleep hot like I do. It's like customized sleep. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with the Midnight Mattress because I wanted something that felt perfect for me based on the way I sleep. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you've been matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired magazine. Just go to helixsleep.com S-Y-S-K and take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. And they'll pick it up if you don't love it. But you'll love it. Helix is offering up to $200 for all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners at helixsleep.com S-Y-S-K. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. You know, it's amazing to think about how many men, women, boys, and girls all over the world wear blue jeans every day. Or some kind of jeans every day. For the most part, blue jeans are thought of as all-American, although technically denim work clothes were worn in Europe over 200 years ago. In 1873, Levi Strauss came out with the first pair of American blue jeans. It was the copper rivets that made them unique and very durable. But how did work clothes become so fashionable? Well, jeans became fashionable because of Western movies. Now, the early movie cowboys wore a lot of fringe and frills, 
But in the 1930s and 40s, actors like John Wayne began wearing denim because they thought it was more authentic. And that started a fashion trend that continues till today. By the way, the most money ever paid for a pair of blue jeans was $46,532. It was paid by the Levi Strauss Company for a pair of miners' jeans from the 1880s. And that is something you should know. How many times have you looked back on a conversation you had recently and said, Oh, I wish I'd said that, or I should have said this. Salespeople do that a lot, and I think we all do it when you look back, especially on conversations where you're trying to influence someone or, or get them to do something. The hindsight is always great, and you always wish you'd said something better. So what if instead of leaving it to chance and hoping you say the right words at the right time, what if you had them all prepared? That's the premise of the book, Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. The author is Phil M. Jones. Phil is one of the world's top sales trainers. He's trained more than 2 million people across five continents in more than 50 countries. And he joins me now. Welcome, Phil. Delight to be here. Thank you for having me. So I like this idea of putting all the the right words and phrases to influence people, to put them in a book so people have them. But isn't that kind of like the sales equivalent to a magician writing a book and and explaining how all his tricks are done? Yeah, what a great question. I have been in the world of working with sales professionals and people in general that have been looking to gain a a decided outcome from a conversation ahead of time their whole entire life. And I've been involved in this space my entire life. And when I studied it and looked at all the conversations that I've been a part of, plus the two million plus people that I've trained, the one commonality between those that would get great results and those that would do so-so is the people who really got it were the ones who knew exactly what to say, when to say, and how to make it count. They made every single one of their words deliver them the right kind of results. And it was more than just a great attitude and great product knowledge and great skill sets. And then I study it further, and you see it appear in all other areas of life. You know, the guy that gets the girl, the girl that gets the job, wherever it might be, it's having the ability to articulate through words to get more of the things that we want. And it started to make me look for what were the absolute triggers? What were the precise exact words that people were saying that were getting them these outcomes? And how could I do more of it? And then the more I put it into practice, the more I'd see success for myself, the more I'd share it with others, the more I'd see success through them and figured there must be something to this. So was it just trial and error? Well, I'll try this this time and see if that works better than the thing I tried last time. It's more reverse engineering. So having trained lots of teams around the world for a variety of different ways, you'd start to look at successful people. I've listened to your podcast for some time, Mike, and one of the things that is a recurring theme is that success leaves clues. And the exact same thing is true here. You'd start to look at why is that person achieving better results when they have the same products, the same service, the same skill set, the same demographic, and one is getting demonstrably different results? It would come down to the words. I guess people think, or some people think, that, you know, they like to believe they can think on their feet, that, that in a situation they'll know what to say at the right time, and that, in fact, that, that's really the test of a great salesperson, is to be able to, to think on their feet in the moment. And, and that's a fascinating point, because the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. Yet still, we leave it very much to that point. 
in our daily lives, anybody who's in any kind of job will be doing repetitive exercises. You may even have repetitive documents. I'm pretty sure that even setting up interview guests towards what you do with your show, Mike, is that you are asking people similar sets of questions or that the process to be able to get them to a point of being able to confirm a time is somewhere like the same. Yet our conversations we have in daily basis could be somewhere like the same if we could only distill them as such. And I think many people could think about, say, the questions they're asked. Common question that everybody's asked is, so what do you do? You know you're going to be asked it. Wouldn't it make sense to have an answer? I do business with a giant number of hearing care practices. A common question that comes into every practice around the world is how much are hearing aids? Yet still very few clinics have a pre-programmed answer. What I'd ask your listeners to do right now is what are the things they know they're going to need to talk about? What are the questions they know they're going to be asked? And wouldn't it make sense to have something that says, when this happens, I'm ready for it? Okay, let's let's dive in with some specific examples, and I'll let you take the lead on this as to some of the ones that, that resonate with people the best to give, give people a taste of what you're talking about here. Well, let's lift a couple of fun ones from the book. And I think one of my favorite sets of words is probably the one that's had the biggest impact on my life in social circumstances and business circumstances of getting people who are stuck in indecision. So when somebody's stuck in indecision, they don't like to be told what to do. People don't like to be told what to do, but they kind of really do. Coupled with that same thought, though, is people are a little bit like sheep. We take safety and confidence in the fact that people like us have enjoyed certain experiences in the past. This is why reviews and ratings are so paramount in decision making today, is that we get confidence from the fact that other people have experienced good things in the past. Take those two pieces of psychology together. And what you can then do is influence all of that power by just utilizing two magic words. See, if I wanted to tell somebody what to do, particularly somebody who I didn't know so well, then what I would do is I'd just talk in terms of most people. I'd say, look, what most people would do in your circumstances is this, this, and this. The little subconscious voice hears at that moment in time, well, I'm most people. So if that's what most people should do, then chances are then that might be a good, safe path for me to travel on to. It brings collective responsibility towards it. Perfect. So another one. Question I'm going to ask of you is if, say, you were in a seminar hall with a thousand people in it, and I was to ask the question to a thousand people who in this room would be open minded, how many hands do you think would shoot up? Everybody. Somewhere like everybody. So let's use that other base level assumption in conversation to get collective agreement ahead of time. See, if I was to say to somebody, how open minded would you be to? and then insert my idea behind that, what is the only thing you can say back in the other idea, other direction? Okay. Right. No's not a choice anymore. And people are so fearful of no. If you present your ideas where no is no longer a choice, at least you get the chance to explore it. We get time to, we get time to spend in maybe, which then allows us to be able to influence maybes to yeses. So by asking people how open-minded they would be, gives you almost a rejection-free way of being able to introduce your idea to somebody without them saying no, because the only way they can say no is by admitting to be closed-minded, which is like <laughs> admitting to be an idiot. <laughs> an- another one. How about a rejection-free way of introducing just about anything to just about anybody? And this is a fun thing, because again, what we are fearful of when we re- introduce an idea is the other person saying no. I hear this from salespeople all the time. We're so scared of a no. So I wonder what we could do if we could make it rejection free. And we do this by introducing an idea to the left or the right of somebody. See, if I said to some, said to you right now, look, I'm not sure if it's for you. 
Well, a few things go through, through your mind. Firstly, the thought that goes through your mind is, well, let me be the judge of that. The second thing that goes through your mind is, I wonder what it is. It fires up curiosity within your human emotion. It makes you lean in. Now, if I build on that set of words and add another three-letter word, I can change what the subconscious hears. If I add the word but, let's consider what the word but does to just about every other set of circumstances. If you were, say, receiving some feedback from your employer at some point, who said, look, I love what you do. You're really energetic and charismatic, and most of the customers like you, but the only thing you then listen to is the thing that follows the but. Let's bring that towards this conversation, knowing that but pretty much negates what was said prior to it. I can introduce just about anything to just about anybody, completely rejection-free, by saying I'm not sure if it's for you, but. What we've now got is the ability for them to hear in their mind's eye, you might want to look at this. Talk about, I like, I like the one, um, before you make up your mind. <laughs> okay. Well, we've all been in situations where you know that somebody is kind of hankering towards this is not going the way that you want it to be. So say if it was on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is that you've got everything you wanted and one is this is not going the way you wanted. You've got maybe somebody who's at a two or a three and you're thinking that this is the slippery slope for me leaving this conversation promptly and quickly. You can bring it back to a five, six or a seven by introducing a new idea prefaced with the words before you make your mind up. If I was to say, look, before you make your mind up, why don't we just look at a few more of the facts? Now what I've done is I've taken a conversation that was closing in the wrong direction and now I've reopened it back up again by inserting some new pieces of evidence that means that they can't form the same conclusion that we could foresee that they were perhaps previously forming. I'm speaking with Phil Jones. We're talking about how to use the right words to influence and impact other people. Phil is author of the book, Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. Making you old-fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned. It has that perfect boldness. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. So, Phil, how likely is it, do you think, people would say, wait a minute, I, I know what you're up to here. Uh, you're, you're trying to use uh, <laughs> words to, to sway me, and I know exactly what you're doing, and it's not going to work on me. Okay. Well, let me just think about this for a second, and, and maybe you could help me out. Is there any chance you could do me a small favor? Sure. Well, look, I just used an example of some words from my book that you've responded to unanimously, and I know that will happen time and time again, by gaining people the opportunity to agree to take an action before they even know what the action is. It is like a literally a reflex reaction that in the same way if somebody nudges you on your side, your arm pokes, pokes up. So there isn't this choice of, I now know what you're doing to me. 
but also know that you have to use this power with integrity. This isn't about manipulation. This isn't about helping getting people to do things that they shouldn't be doing. This is helping assist people through the decision-making process. And I'm 100% certain that everybody listening in right now, yourself included, knows things better than other people for other people in certain circumstances. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is, let's take, for example, that you were in a position that you could deliver somebody some advice about hosting a podcast. Chances are you'd know a lot more about this thing than most people that you'd be talking to. And that you could use that knowledge and experience to be able to guide them towards what the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do is. This is what we should be thinking towards with any of our language patterns is that we're not steering somebody towards something in order to create some superior outcome for ourselves. We're steering somebody towards something because we feel it will give them more of what they said that they wanted. It's all about, you know, I hear things in in sales that, you know, he's so good that he could sell, you know, ice to a polar bear. Polar bears don't need ice. They're going to wake up disappointed. We have a responsibility when you know how to be able to influence decision to use it for good reasons and not for bad reasons and use it to help people through the decision making process. And most people are, they don't like making decisions. They like somebody to help them through that process. And I see this mistake happen all the time, particularly in big retail stores right now. Now, I wonder if this has ever happened to anybody coming into a store is you're thinking, well, I need a new washing machine. And you're really hoping that somebody with some expertise will help navigate you and guide you through that process. But instead, they say, you know, how many programs do you want? I'm like, I don't know. I've got no idea. Ask a better question and we might get a better result. But instead, what happens is for people being fearful of getting involved in the decision making process, they ask dumb questions, no questions or give advice that was unsolicited. And that's what turns people off. Yet instead, what we could be doing is listening to people help use our expertise and navigate them more towards the decisions that are the right outcomes for them. I just had, I have this mental picture of that polar bear waking up so disappointed because he bought the ice. Yeah. And what would his like (laughs) Mrs. Polar Bear be saying to him for like spending their hard home savings? We have plenty of ice. We have ice. We got this. What'd you buy more for? (laughs) He's got to feel like such a jerk. But it seems like it such gets a- celebrated today. And I think I just want to build on that. The, 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 there's still far too many people that celebrate salesmanship on the day that the ice is sold to the polar bear. The celebration should be for anybody in a business context is, you know, when the polar bear wakes up realizing he doesn't need any more ice. It's when the consumer gets the win that was anticipated. So success. And I do a lot of work with salespeople as, as well as other areas in life is We should shift the goalpost. The goalpost is never the yes decision. The goalpost is achieving the outcome that the consumer was promised at the point of transaction. That's where we should be celebrating. And I think utilizing the right tools in helping people through that process means that we don't just sign more orders. It means we end up with happy people long ways down the track, and then that builds reputations too. One or two more. Okay. Do you remember being a kid and that you knew one of the greatest times ever is when um, an adult might say to you the words once upon a time? Sure. See, when you hear the words once upon a time, you think this is going to be good. I can open my mind up. I'm going to go to a happy place and somebody's going to insert thoughts that are going to make me think happy things. So we got triggered into this and we quite like it. Now, we also have to understand that decisions are continually made in pictures. I don't know whether you ever found yourself saying the words to yourself, words like, I cannot see myself doing that. It's a physical thing. Every decision that's ever been made has been made at least twice. 
once in reality, but prior to that, hypothetically in your mind. So if you can help somebody see themselves doing something, then the chances of getting them to do that thing or do the thing that gets them away from the thing that they've just seen become significantly higher. Now, I can paint pictures, I can tell stories, I can get things to happen in people's minds with the words once upon a time, providing I'm speaking to somebody under the age of six. Adults, it gets a little harder. Yet what we can do instead is we can preface a conversation or a statement with the words just imagine. And we cannot help but picture things. Just imagine six months on from now that you're sat in your favorite beach home enjoying your favorite cocktail. You cannot help but see it. And by having the ability to paint the pictures that you want somebody to move towards or away from, just by utilizing that simple two-word preface, gives you a fair advantage in almost every conversation. Everybody knows that when they're trying to convince somebody, influence them, get them to buy something, there's always going to be objections. And one of the things you say is to say, what makes you say that? Talk about that, because I think that that's bound to come up. Okay. Now, objections exist in every area of life. And what we have to do is firstly understand what an objection really is. Now, objection is a number of things. It could be a request for more information. It could be a polite way of saying no. But what it definitely is, is a challenge to your control in a conversation. And success in negotiation is all about controlling conversation. Now, if you were to say, um, I recently got the privilege of being a guest on the, um, on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. It was a fun place to be. And who's in control of the Jimmy Fallon show? Well, it's Jimmy Fallon, right? Why? Not because it's his show, but because he's the guy that's asking the questions. The person asking the questions is the one who's always in control of the conversation. Understanding that an objection is nothing more than a challenge to your control. The first thing you need to do is to get control back. Let's take a business objection like, wow, that sounds expensive. You could immediately jump to the back foot and start to be able to argue this. The trouble with an argument is an argument ends up with a winner and a loser. This means that if you're the winner, what's the other person? Not only that, in this argument, you feel desperate. You come across desperate. It's If you were to visualize it, just imagine being like a turtle or a tortoise on their back with their legs. This is what I picture when I see people trying to defend an argument this way around. What you're far better to do is to regain control of the conversation with a question. Now, for every objection, I could write a million different questions, one for each one that comes up, or I could give one question that works with every single objection. And that's the question that you mentioned a second ago. Customer says, well, that sounds expensive. You say, what makes you say that? Customer says, I need to speak to my partner before making a decision over that. You say, what makes you say that? It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. That question puts you back in control and it helps you find the condition of their indecision. Yes, and, and by asking that question and maybe asking it multiple times, you find out what's really going on. You may find out if you keep asking what makes you say that, you may find out that the person isn't buying anything. And then that's okay. And I think what happens by alternative here is if you're not brave enough to be able to get to that fact in the information, that there might be more to it, then what ends up happening is that people in that situation is the salesperson sounds overly salesy because they spend the next 22 minutes chewing the guy's ear off as to the hundred reasons why they should do business with him, yet he's got no interest in listening. What we have is we've been presented with a condition of no. We are within our rights to be able to explore that condition and find out if that's the only condition. If it is, then we can look to be able to build value from that position. But let's build value from a position of fact 
rather than build value from a position of naivety. But you know that you can put your head on the pillow at night saying, I can't say I lost that sale because there was no sale to be had. Yeah. Guy wasn't shopping today. He was just shopping around. Well, clearly words matter. Saying the right words at the right time can really make a difference in how influential and impactful you are. And, uh, and you've put all those words in a book. Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact by my guest, Phil Jones. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And uh, if uh, people want to contact you, Phil, how do they do that? If you're struggling to find me in any way, head to philmjones.com. Needs the M, otherwise you find a Manchester United football player. And that's football, <laughs> the game you play with your feet. And um, you'll also find all of my social networks linked across from my webpage too. And I'd be delighted to join in the conversation with anybody who's listened in today. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. Hey, I'm Kat Lasso. I'm Xavier Jarnigan. And I'm Speedy Mormon. And together we're the hosts of Spotify's new morning show, The Get Up. Every day we're bringing you the biggest news stories and pop culture headlines. Ooh, and the conversations you need to be in on. Okay. Don't worry, if you're not a morning person, we're doing the work for you. So just search The Get Up, hit play, and listen up for everything you need to know. With a playlist made just for you. Listen now for free, only on Spotify. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Since I talk for a living and listen to other people talk for a living, I'm really aware of how people speak, how they say what they say. It makes a huge difference. I mean, I'll even tell you that I sometimes interview people for this podcast, and those people sometimes have a really interesting message on paper, but the way they say it, the way they talk about it, doesn't really bring the message through in an interesting or compelling or even easy-to-comprehend way. And I consequently don't use that interview. How you talk and how other people talk says so much. And here to explain how and why this is so important is Katherine Kinsler. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago and author of the book, How You Say It why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. Hi, Catherine. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Explain what you mean by how the way you talk, what it says about you, perhaps using some examples, just to, get a set, just to make people understand what it is we're talking about. I think when people think about language, you think a lot about, you know, I said this thing, it's out in the world, now you're going to hear my content and understand what I said. But language is so much more than the content of the words or, you know, the literal communication. It's also about the way you say something. It's about the language you use. It's about your accent. It's about the way your words sound, which reflects all the voices that you've heard speaking to you throughout your lifetime. So in that sense, it's really really giving you a sense of who you've, not just what you're saying, but also who you've been talking to. 
And isn't it also true that it, it's not just what you say and how you say it, it's how other people hear it? That's right. And so it's both sides. When you talk, you're releasing all these voices that you've heard reflected in your speech, but then you're also walking around the world kind of, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, judging other people based on their speech. And so when someone sounds like you do, it's really easy to think, oh, that person's like me. But of course, the flip side is that when someone sounds different, it's easy to see them as being different from you in some sort of a meaningful way. So give me some examples of what you're, what you're talking about. Let's take American English, right? So there isn't just one kind of American English. There's English that's spoken differently all over the country. Um, sometimes people say, well, why don't we just all, you know, speak in one way? Wouldn't that be really easy? Um, but the thing about language is that it morphs and changes with different people and different groups of people. So because language is so social, when people come together, their voices come together. And when people, you know, develop different cultures, their voices sound different. So let me give you some examples in the U.S. Now, a lot of research has looked at where people think the, you know, kind of the fault lines and language lie. Now, actually, a lot of dialects are continuous across different groups. So it's not to say that, you know, you, you're here in the city and then you move one step outside the city boundary, everybody sounds different. But you could take, often people call standard American English. Now, of course, standard is probably a pretty loaded term and some people don't like using that. But the idea would be the kind of speech you might hear in parts of the Midwest and the East Coast um, that you might hear on the news. And and then, of course, in New York, people speak differently. You can imagine a Brooklyn English, the kind of the the coffee talk kind of uh, is the, the typical idea. Um, you can think about Southern American English. Now, of course, there's many different aspects of Southern American English. There's not just one kind. You can go to different states and hear different varieties. You can think about African American English, which, again, there's different varieties, um, but you see groups of people who have different varieties of native of American English, no dialect is better or worse than any other, but you can hear differences in how people talk across the U.S. And those differences that we hear and that we say, that's important why? What's, what's the point of all this? The point of all of this is that language is critical for how we connect with each other and also how we feel prejudiced and divide ourselves, and yet people aren't aware of it. And so people may think that when they speak, they're just communicating, and they are just communicating, but also language is this underappreciated aspect of our social lives that has huge implications for how people live together and who you might, you know, who you might accept and who you might not accept. And there's just a tremendous amount of underappreciated prejudice based on language that I think we really need to reckon with and become aware of in ourselves. Well, I think people have a s sense of this. I mean, I, I certainly do. I know there are certain accents and certain ways that people speak that I don't like, that are hard for me to listen to, and, and I probably therefore make judgments about those people. But I know that. I mean, I'm aware of those prejudices that I have about certain accents. So, so what do I do with that? 
So I think there's two things in what you just said that I think probably many listeners have that same kind of impression. And so, you know, I like what you just said. So one thing is that you might not realize where the feeling of like, oh, I just don't like this accent, where that comes from, right? So you might think that there's something kind of inherent in the signal of it. So it's like, well, this one is just more pleasing on the ear and this other one doesn't sound as good. But actually people's judgments about different accents and different dialects and languages are absolutely informed by other kinds of uh, cultural stereotypes and prejudices about different groups of speakers. Um, people may be completely unaware of this in themselves too. So I'll give you one example that was um, kind of a one example of a really famous set of linguistic studies going back to the 1960s in Montreal, where there was a lot of language politics at the time. And in many ways, English speakers, you know, had more economic opportunities than did French speakers at the time. And people would hear voices and they would actually be the same person speaking in two different ways. And people would think, oh, the guy who's speaking English just sounds a lot nicer and smarter and taller than the guy speaking French, when in fact, it was actually the same individual individual recording the voices. So the idea is that prejudice about different groups of speakers come out when we're evaluating someone's speech. Another take-home message you might have from this is the idea. So in addition to saying, okay, when I'm biased against somebody's speech, um, you know, that might reflect other cultural biases that I have. The second thing to take home is that this has huge implications for things like whether somebody can get a house, whether somebody can get a job, how they're treated by teachers in school. And that I think we're really unaware of the weight of linguistic bias in our society, that it's not just something like, yeah, I kind of like the way this one person speaks and not this other person, but actually, it has tremendous implications for how we live together. And so is the is the recommendation to change the way you talk or what or no. so what do we do with this? Yeah. So I think the recommendation, the first thing that we do with this is we become aware of it. And so I think that, you know, when we're thinking, when we're grappling with issues about, you know, who has privilege and who doesn't um, and how we treat each other, we're completely unaware or many people, not everybody, but many people are unaware of how people who speak in a way that other people don't like or that's considered a non-standard dialect, um, how they might be treated more poorly by individuals and by institutions. So say like in a legal setting that their voices might be treated as less truthful. Um, less credible. So there's a lot of studies showing that when people speak in a way that's not considered standard, the very the content of their speech is treated as less true, even though, of course, that's not fair or right. So I think awareness is one thing. And then another thing I think we can do is a bigger cultural shift is thinking about the value of multilingualism and linguistic diversity in the society. So we have sort of a long standing monolingual myth in this country. And that's kind of the idea that maybe Maybe just learning one language, just learning English is safer, it's easier, it's less taxing on the cognitive system. And it turns out that that's not right, that humans are perfectly capable of learning multiple languages. And I think that we need to shift a focus in education and more generally in terms of thinking of the value of multiple languages for our children. So it sounds like what you're saying is we need to be understanding that people speak in different languages, they have different accents, they have different dialects, and we shouldn't jump to conclusions or make judgments about them based on the way they speak. And I understand that, but I think there's a flip side to this too. I mean, if, if you don't speak 
what is considered, quote, good English, and you walk into an office in the United States of America and apply for a job, and you just butcher the language and nobody can really understand what you're talking about, you're not going to get the job. And you can say, well, that's not fair, you're making a judgment based on the way they speak. Well, maybe, but they're still not going to get the job. I do think that's actually something we could change. You know, one thing that people don't understand is how communication is two-sided. So when we think about how we talk, we often think, you know, something like, okay, I said my thing. Now, you know, I did it perfectly. Now it's up to you to understand it. And so then you get this kind of intuition, like someone came in to apply for my job. Um, Maybe that person spoke in a way that I found hard to understand and my customers will find it hard to understand. And so, okay, I'm not going to hire that person. Now, the problem here is that a lot of biases and just the kind of biases that employment law aims to protect against um, seep into people's judgments of what you can and can't understand. So there's all sorts of elegant studies in psychology showing that people can shut down their listening. And so somebody could say something and it's not the case that it's just out there in the world perfectly there, but if the listener is not, you know, not paying attention or feels like they don't under, they don't want to understand you, then they actually stop understanding you. Or likewise, people can think that they understood something. So their subjective assessments of whether or not somebody was clear in speaking can be completely different from their actual objective measures of comprehension. Did they understand it? So my point is that employment law protects against biases, you know, racism, prejudice in all sorts of ways. And this prejudice against speech can really be prejudice as opposed to an actual failure of communication. People, however, have prejudices against all kinds of things. People can walk into a job mm-hmm. and be discriminated against because they're too short, because they're, they're too fat, they, because they don't dress right. People, mm-hmm. people have these biases that yep. it sounds like you're trying to engineer out, but I don't think you can engineer them out. So I don't think you can engineer out all of human, you know, preferences for sure. I think I I understand what you're saying there. I think language is this really, really big critical one, you know, so when we think about how people, you know, when we look at how people evaluate each other, a lot of social psychology research says, okay, you meet someone new, what do you pick out about them? You might notice their gender, their race, um, their age, and these are the kind of factors indeed that we try to protect against in, um, in employment discrimination law. And what I'm saying is that when you meet somebody new, their language, and their dialect and their accent and their accent that's up there with those other really big primary categories that we use to divide the world and we find that really even early in life kind of right away babies in some of my research I find that babies hear how somebody sounds and that's how they're starting to carve up the world into different groups that language can really be a primary variable for how we evaluate other people. Yeah. So if they're doing it as babies, I mean, it mm-hmm. seems pretty inherent in human nature to yeah. to take that so, into consideration. Yeah. So when I think about what it means for, you know, what does it mean when a baby does it, right? Is it Does it mean, okay, this is how it is? Does it mean this is something that's really strongly part of our human cognition and it's important to understand it? 
And what I think it means in this case is that babies come into the world with the predisposition to see language as marking and dividing groups. So it's like babies and young kids start to see the way you speak is really, it really matters a lot. Now, what they don't have there are stereotypes and prejudice about different groups of speakers. Um, and so that's something that really develops with age. And so you could have this inclination to think that language matters for figuring out who's who, but you don't necessarily have to be in a world where you learn that some ways of talking are better than others. Some are prestigious and some aren't. That that's kind of the societal biases that are layering on top of your early thinking about language. You know, maybe I can give you one kind of tangible example from my own research. Sure. Um, so, you know, I do find that early in life, kids like people who sound familiar or native, which I think, you know, could make a lot of sense. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're prejudiced in any way. Now, when they get older, they start to kind of absorb the messages that society has to give them. So in one study, we wanted to see how kids started to think about Northern versus Southern American English. And there's a lot of stereotypes out there among adults about different ways of speaking in the North versus the South. And so we tested a group of kids in the North and a group of kids in the South, and they heard um, voices from both places. And basically what we found was that in kindergarten, five-year-olds, you know, liked what was familiar. So in the North, they liked the Northern speech. In the South, they actually liked both types of speech. And I think they're probably exposed to both, particularly if you consider the media. But by the time kids were in fourth grade, so around nine or 10, kids in both places started to think that the Northerners sounded smarter and the Southerners sounded nicer. And so they're absorbing these stereotypes. And, you know, it seems like it's really something that it's both they're gaining knowledge that society has, but it's not something that they might explicitly, you know, think is right or that their parents would say is right or that should factor into whether or not somebody gets a job later on. But isn't it just human nature that people are attracted? We know that people like people like me, that, that, that I'm just drawn to people who are more like me than people who are very different than me. That's just how humans operate. I think there's absolutely a lot of that at the basis of this. And I think the problem is, is that it's not such a far leap to go from, I like people like me to I'm going to exclude somebody who's not like me, or I'm going to exclude an entire group of people in our society or see them as less valued. And so that's kind of the, you know, it's a fine line. And it's not to say that connecting with people who speak like you or who are like you can't be a wonderful aspect of human connection. Absolutely, it can be. But I think we also just have to be aware in ourselves of our instinct to exclude people who are different. Okay, but it, it just, it, it almost sounds like what you're saying is, you know, in, in the past, when people come mm -hmm. to this country and they don't speak English, they've always mm -hmm. been encouraged to learn it. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to apply for a job or you need to communicate yeah. with people, it's going to be a lot easier if you speak English. It almost yeah. sounds like what you're saying is, no, 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 no. You people have to understand this, the Spanish-speaking person coming in. Don't mm -hmm. ask them to learn English. You need to understand their Spanish. Yeah, so, that's, so what I'm saying is multilingualism is a great thing. And so for somebody coming to the U.S., absolutely, learning English is a great thing. 
And I think that we could do a lot more to support in schools, um, English language learners. So kids who don't speak English as a first language at home, we could do a lot more to help them learn English. And I agree absolutely that learning English is, um, is a really great thing. But then I also think for kids who only speak English, being exposed to people who speak different languages, seeing multilingualism in general as something that's valued is helpful. So it's not saying something like everybody speak their own language and nobody learn English. Instead, it's saying learning English is great, but also for kids who only hear English, being exposed to other languages is positive for them too. But but aside from multi languages, mm-hmm. multiple languages, just people with you know who mumble. If if you want to get mm-hmm. a job here, yeah. we need to speak mm-hmm. clearly. And don't don't ask me to hire a mumbler when I don't I can't use a mumbler. <laughs> Just because that's how they speak and I'm being prejudiced against them, they're mumbling. I, I, we need people who speak clearly in this organization. So I think that um, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I have to be honest that I don't have a particular stance or any research on mumbling in specific. But it could be yeah. somebody, it could be just somebody who, who just speak some kind of very bizarre dialect of English that that just doesn't, you know, it, it isn't going to work here because we have to communicate with people, you know, very clearly. And I don't know what yeah. you're talking about, so I can't hire you. So I guess, like, let's imagine that we lined up all the dialects of English, okay? In some, I, I don't know that we could really do this, but let's pretend that we could in some, um, in some way that, made them closer or further from your dialect in terms of what you understand. Okay. So like, let's imagine this hypothetical dialect continuum of how close they are to you and how much you understand them. What I'm saying is that probably for many people, your judgments of somebody who say speaks in British English, even if it's further in terms of the understand dimension, you'd say, oh yeah, that's a dialect I could have around my job. Like that sounds pretty smart and cool versus somebody who speaks in a dialect that's seen as less prestigious. Even if you can understand them better, you're going to be more likely to pass them over because something about it isn't going to feel right. And I'm saying that's not actually about understanding. That's about something else. Well, I imagine awareness is a good first step. Because I think we don't even think about how we make judgments about people based on the way they speak, but but we do. A linguist called a bunch of um, how you know people who are offering apartments, apartment landlords, I guess, and either made his voice sound like he spoke Spanish, like he spoke in a way that's traditionally seen as white, or like he spoke in a way that's traditionally seen as black. And he said the same thing. He was just asking if this apartment was available. There was really nothing social about it. Um, And then he gets dramatically different responses for the same apartment about whether or not they want somebody, whether or not they want him to live there. So again, like what's coming out in your voice can matter. Another study looked at, these were potential buyers for homes, and they varied whether somebody sounded like they had... um, Uh, I guess it was a slight foreign accent in English versus a heavier foreign accent in English. And again, they reached really different successes and whether or not a bank wanted to lend them money. Um, And so it's the kind of thing where people, you know, can face really different, even if, even if, you know, you're, what you're saying is exactly the same based on how standard your voice sounds or people perceive your voice, you can face really different odds at just accomplishing basic things in this country. 
Well, I think it's an important topic because I don't think anybody can say that they don't make judgments about people based on the way they speak. I mean, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction when somebody talks a certain way that conjures up something that makes you make a judgment about them. And, and in a lot of cases, it's probably not fair. Catherine Kinsler has been my guest. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and her book is called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. There's a link to her book in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much, Mike. It was really fascinating talking with you, and um, it's so it's really an honor to be on your show. You know, there's a fine line between laughing and crying. You can even do both of them at the same time. The late psychologist Robert R. Provine explained that laughing and crying are similar psychological reactions. Both occur during states of high emotional arousal. Both laughter and tears have some lingering effects. And neither one can be sincerely turned on or off at will. Human tears are actually triggered by a variety of emotions, pain, sadness, and even joy. And if you can manage to laugh and cry simultaneously, you're actually getting a double dose of stress relief. Both emotional outbursts counteract the effects of cortisol and adrenaline. So go ahead, laugh till you cry or cry till you laugh. And that is something you should know. If you're stuck at home, you're locked down, can't go out, nowhere to go, well, I've got something you could do. It'll only take a few minutes, and that would be to leave a rating and review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mike Herbrothers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.